Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. There's monsters from the British Isles to the Ozarks. Monsters from the Celtic past are roaming around the 21st century. We will get back to that in a minute. But first, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. So what monsters would the Celts recognize in today's Ozarks? I think it's fair to say that there are so many that uh, the Celts would recognize a number of them or certainly forms of them. And as we were doing our research a week and a half ago, of course, last week's episode, we realized there is so many monsters uh, and beasties to consider that uh, this makes part two of our material. So from old gods to mischievous supernatural beasts to monsters of a more mortal kind, there's a lot to cover and uh, more than a few familiar faces here in the Ozarks. And of course, that does include the Ozarks Howler. (laughs) We will return to what might be hiding in the dark or lurking under your bed. But first, we want to invite you to like follow and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Substack, as well as your favorite podcast platforms. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Scoop Light. Subscribe today to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online, on Facebook, and at the website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com, for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's Best Brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer, great food, in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Oh, so we are back to monsters in uh, the Ozarks. And you really cannot contextualize monsters in the Ozarks without 
dealing with monsters in Appalachia and monsters in the British Isles. That's true. They're, they're sort of a straight line over time between the three places for immigration as well as the beasties, uh, whether they be of the mythical or the mortal kind. <laughs> Uh, or a combination of the two. I think that's a, a weird moment of intersection. Well, and that really kind of goes back to where the word monster comes from. Um, it, it has a different meaning generally today than it did originally. It originated uh, in the 1300s in the British Isles, uh, actually. But it meant an unnatural event or being. So uh, when we think of monsters as being a large animal or, or even a monstrous storm of a natural kind, that is a more modern conception than what originally a monster was. It is. And what I would invite people to do and to consider is just how the shift of words changes our perception and explains or contextualizes the world around us a little bit differently. We have grown up with a very, I, I would say, strictly compartmentalized uh, definition of the word monster. That's mm -hmm. uh, even dating our, ourselves into this this mindset of, uh, of Scooby-Doo, which I love, but zoinks, it's a monster. Um, yep. It's it's simply as a, a thing. And of course, the monster gets uh, unmasked. And uh, we find out that it's, you know, Mr. Sneedley, the banker. But it's, I, I really like coming back uh, to this Middle English um, definition of a portent um, an unnatural event or a, a being that is associated with the portent or the unnatural event. And for some of us, I, I think probably more of us than uh, a popular culture gets credence to, some of us have had these experiences in which we realize that we are within proximity of something unnatural. True. Um, often in today's society, there's been a reaction of trying to explain that away, or it has to be something natural. Um, but certainly a lot of people have had those kind of uh, experiences. In fact, we had one come to us an event we were at this weekend um, about a encountering a canine type of monster but was viewed as much larger than any even wolf or anything else that um, left the impression that it was aware of them and that it was not an ordinary animal. Um, and I mean, that fits into a lot of the lore in the, in the region, whether it's, uh, phantom, phantom dogs, booger dogs, um, or, uh, 
you know, almost a shapeshifter or uh, one that we we're going to talk about tonight is the snarly yow. It is. And, and what I really just encourage uh, listeners to, to think about as we delve into so many of these beasts, these com this compendium, uh, that a, a commonality for many of them, not all, but a commonality for many, is that 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 sense for those who, who have experienced it, that sense in the back of your mind, this resonance that what you are encountering or what has been encountered is outside of normal. Yes. That and is, and, and normal being a, a corporeal world where things work as we can gauge and measure and anticipate. And suddenly something happens and it might be a physical manifestation of a being, it might be something physical, it might be phantom-like, but something that so many people walk away from these experiences saying is, it was just, it was, and sometimes the word is wrong, it was mm -hmm. there was something about it that was wrong. There was something about it that was weird. Uh, I love the uh, uh, the reference uh, used by Shakespeare, the weird sisters. There's something about them that is. Uh, if you're a Star Trek fan, you would call it interdimensional. Uh, you would. It's the idea that it is vastly and genuinely other. Yes. The uh, something of the other is probably a really good way of, of putting it. Um, that all of those things kind of fall into that basket, and um, in that sense, it really <clears throat> the idea is uh, continuous with the original meaning of what a monster was. It is, and <clears throat> that. Mm, for those who've encountered and then walk away from it, that they are left with a very strong sense of being deeply unsettled. Yes. Um, or a, a changed type of awareness or worldview. And of course, you can't talk about these type of experiences and, and we'll get to the uh, this first beastie here in just a second, but these type of experiences, I would say it's fair that it is difficult for the human psyche or the, the rational conscious mind to fully understand is something that are oftentimes are, you know, what is behind our conscious mind recognizes and reacts to the environment, whereas our conscious mind is just trying to keep up. Exactly. And something that I think, <clears throat> and this is not uh, to weigh in on one side or other of the quote unquote alien debate, but that there's a strong similarity, individuals experiencing something that is quote unquote wrong and not able to be understood, oftentimes gets lumped into alien sightings. Whereas years ago, it would have been perhaps the Fae uh, or, or something else. Very true, very true. Um, but again, just on terms, on their own terms as 
alien sightings and the the experience it still fits into that same definition it does so uh the snarly owl is actually from appalachia and bears some interesting comparisons some some direct ties with beasties here in the ozarks as well as beasties in the old world specifically the british isles yes um if you go back to the aisles, you, you have all kinds of canine uh, beasts, you know, the, the black hounds and then phantom booger dogs and various sorts that um, those tales all came to the new world with settlers. And the Snarly Yow actually goes back to colonial times back east. Um, uh, and to be honest, I think it's kind of a continuation of the old tales, but garnered this new name. And I think Snarly Yow really came from the fact that when it's encountered, yeah. it tends to snarl at you and have large fangs. And, interestingly a red mouth correct and it is well it is a it's an interesting one to start with in terms of our compendium because it is both physical and non-physical simultaneously mm -hmm. it is uh it, it appears and gives every indication that it is physical when it is manifested and then it vanishes yes and without, and sometimes without a seeming reason, and seems to appear to kind of terrorize the the witnesses, and then just disappear, um, which uh, almost has a bit of a a trickster aspect to it as well. But you know, it is described as a massive four legged four legged beast that, for all intents and purposes, it, it appears rather canine. Um, now, it tends to, um, it would, um, oh, and it, it is uh, spirit in the, in the essence that when it's shot at, bullets pass through it. Right. <clears throat> Which is interesting. It's something that came to my mind just in terms of well, a couple of things. One, it appears to manifest and and dissipate uh, of its own will it appears to target randomly mm -hmm. uh, in in this case it could exist as a death omen but it doesn't specifically appear to exist as a death omen no it's all it's it seems more like just to cause havoc uh, uh, traditionally uh, it would appear in and uh, scare horses so that they would throw the riders off and then it would disappear it didn't attack the riders and my uh, more suspicious nature in terms of someone being targeted by the snarly yow and, and then saying i don't know why this happened the possibility that they might actually have done something to cause this and they might actually know what that is but it might be something that they don't want to talk about that's true. Almost a, a bit of uh, karma in action. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's it's something to consider. That's pure conjecture. But yeah. in in terms of a a cross tie to the Ozarks, the Snarly Yow does have a, a lot of comparisons, obviously, with with what we call a booger dog, um, black phantom dogs uh, of enormous size and uh, and fearsome presence. Interestingly, and a little bit separate from the Snarly Yow, booger dogs are traditionally uh, death omens here in the Ozarks. The Snarly Yow did not appear to be a death omen. And you can also trace, as, as you mentioned, all of this um, black hound or black beast lore in a, in a pretty direct line back to the British Isles. The one that is of particular note for me is going straight back to Scotland, which is the Cushy, uh, the the phantom dog. Yeah, uh, and I think that's I think that's likely what probably, especially in colonial times, it was compared to or reminiscent of for for settlers. Um, I do like the fact that um, the the snarly owl is keeping up with the times and <laughs> and it will now chase cars yeah as, as, um, dog, as dogs do as dogs do uh but causing um accidents causing startling the drivers causing them to to swerve and crash and that it will stick on around long enough to intimidate the driver before um disappearing which is admittedly terrifying there is uh, an aspect, and coming over to the, the Scottish Highlands uh, for just a moment with the Cushy. Um, the Cushy is is essentially a fairy dog, and I mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a, an interesting term because we we don't typically put those two words together in uh, modern American culture, and mm -hmm. but in terms of being monstrous, the uh, uh, the Cushy is is oftentimes described as being the size of a small cow and comes in a variety of colors, sometimes dark green. And the the aspect of Fay, I think, is particularly of note in regards, and in you could argue, or at least conjecture, that in, in terms of uh, phantom, spectral, corporeal, non-corporeal hounds that we're, we're dealing with several different manifestations. The Snarly Yow really does fit the, uh, the personality of the Fae. Mm -hmm. it, it does. I mean, it's, it, it's um, more mischievous and... Um, instead of attacking or death omen um and it just it occurred to me that um one thing that will happen even if they don't cause a, a car wreck they tend to, they'll chase cars and then just disappear and this fits squarely in a report that we have out of the rolla area of a woman driving down the highway in this you know monstrous black dog starting to chase her car and keeping up at highway speeds and did so for a couple of miles and then suddenly just disappeared. 
and she never saw where it went. Is uh, is frightening on all counts. And yes, she um, she she was definitely freaked out and said that it took her several weeks before she would drive that way to work again. And I believe that's fair. That is again something that is important to understand about the Fae, about the the traditional nature of the fairies, where it, it's difficult to even say that word uh, without build, without bringing along a lot of uh, 20th century and even 19th century baggage that we do not associate with the traditional lore. And so the idea that, uh, that the Cushy, uh, the fairy dog, is terrifying, monstrous, um, a bringer of chaos, although not necessarily a death omen, it is an interesting side to this. And it, I like it because it begins to unravel one's perception of the term fae or fairy and what we're directly dealing with. So whether this is uh, our, our uh, first person or you know documented account near Rolla, whether it is some of Vance Randolph's lore with booger dogs, whether it's the Appalachian um, Snarly Yow, <clears throat> or whether it's the Kushi, we are looking at something that in terms of the lore traces its lineage to the ancient Celtic god, the Tuatha de Danann. And these are beings that exert an enormous amount of power when they manifest and have a lot of potential chaos to create when they decide to show up. Very much so, very much so. And, it, and this is just a good illustration of that. I'm, I'm also interested, of course, uh, an aspect of, uh, of British just history, of the, the history of the British Isles, that is an important tie-in because it affects Appalachian lore and it affects Ozark's lore is the, the varying uh, quote-unquote mythologies that were brought together. And with I, I feel that with the, the Snarliow uh, and uh, the Cushy, we're looking at a decidedly Gaelic uh, root of belief structure. But uh, the Gaels, the, the Celts of the British Isles are not the only peoples to be um, bringing their their belief structures and their ideas into the into the mix, and we have uh, the Anglo-Saxons, uh, the Germanic tribes, <coughs> originally from Western continental Europe, uh, across the North Sea, uh, from Britain, bringing theirs, as well as later waves of Vikings and uh, of, of Scandinavian ancient Scandinavian lore, and. My, my, what I'm conjecturing is that uh, the Black Hound as a death omen may trace its roots back to our Germanic and Scandinavian lore and to the ancient gods uh, of, of uh, Northern continental Europe, separate from the ancient gods of the Celts. And, and, I think that would that fits with the ancient lore of those groups 
very well. Um, but you know, it, it just speaks to the fact that there was this mixing of cultures in the British Isles. And then of course, once over in North America, even more groups being mixed in that uh, you do have these themes that are more dominant. And I think personally that there's a reason for that, that they resonate because over time, and we're talking hundreds of years going on, you know, thousands of years that they resonate because there are types of experiences that people have had over generations that they recall this and yes, that's what happened. That's what I saw. That's what happened to me. And that really brings up a interesting intersection of ideas because, and, and I have, a, I, I, my preferences are a mix of all of them, but one, one aspect of this is that there is a, a standard genre of unnatural events that we've, we, we have not been able to effectively catalog. And so that around the world, certain types of strange and difficult to document or impossible to doc currently document phenomena occurs, um, certain manifestations, certain um, things going on. And that each uh, original culture, each primitive culture or ancient culture that has encountered these things that are all very similar, uh, created their own lore to explain a singular phenomena. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's reasonable because it does um, uh, explain a certain aspect of similarity of lore uh, mm -hmm. in the sense that so many cultures around the world have a similar types of mm, stories in their in their ancient structures and and so that one is the reasonable one um me not being a reasonable person uh also uh, likes to jump over to the the other which is that each indigenous people groups uh gathering of lore perhaps their gods and their supernatural entities and beings are unique uh, are unique to them and not dissimilar to the uh, uh, the <laughs> quantum mechanics argument of many worlds, but rather than just many physical worlds, the idea of many other worlds that somehow resonate and connect with certain people groups or certain people of ancestral lines. What does seem to be consistent is that certain manifestations of lore follow certain people groups or certain peoples of, of ancestral lines from one geographical location to another, sometimes against their will. And so it brings up the question, for example, the Scots-Irish uh, with their um, cosmology largely intact, um, albeit framed within uh, a hearty Calvinist Presbyterianism, 
coming over to the new world, quote unquote, uh, coming over to North America and setting up shop in, the, in Appalachia and later the Ozarks, but that certain mm, aspects of, of the, essentially the old beliefs, the manifestations of the old gods still following from generation to generation. <laughs> and there is a, there's an aspect to that possibility that I like because it is mm, very, very textured and very complex and it exists within, it exists outside of time and space. I, I, I like that. And, and maybe just me being me, but I, I think it's almost a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. I think, I think there's, there's, I think there's aspects of both of those arguments that make sense to me. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, for me too, I, from a, from a, from an ancestral perspective, there is a part of me, even though some of these manifestations are frightening mm -hmm. uh, for us, oftentimes as mere mortals, there is something to me that is very, comforting and structural uh, but unique to many individuals the idea that that these things follow it reminds me of a and it's a funny story it's not um, it's not meant to be fully taken seriously but as with many uh, folk tales I think there's a lesson thereof and it deals with a Scottish bogger uh, the, the the old Scottish name for what we now would call a poltergeist. And uh, the, the boggart is um, deeply mischievous and is haunting this poor family, tossing about pots and pans, breaking things in the kitchen, uh, constantly raising a ruckus. And they finally have had it. Mm -hmm. uh, they finally, uh, the, the, the uh, Scottish father, farmer has, headed up here. He says, that's it. We're moving. We're leaving the house. I'm not going to deal with a haunted house anymore. We're done. Packs up all their stuff, moves to the opposing side of the valley. They've packed up all of their, their pots and pans and all of their belongings and shoved them in the wagon. They go to the other side of the, the mountain valley uh, to move into a cabin there. And just as they arrive and they get ready to unpack things, the voice of the boggart comes from one of the uh, the big jars that they had pulled out of the kitchen, and the voice says, "Why did we move?" <laughs> uh, I I think that is apropos, and uh, in a bit of how a, this does function in 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 reality almost to the point that people are not conscious of these things coming with them through time and through family lines etc um but why some of this resonates and it might not resonate with with someone that doesn't have the same background right <clears throat> and Along with this, I think something that is 
important to consider is that <clears throat> the backing up with the industrialization of the 20th century. It's an industrialization that we've taken for granted. We, uh, we love the amenities, we love the communication, we love the speed at which things occur. Um, we, are, we are so inured within the industrialization that we actually become nostalgic about past iterations of pop culture's marketing. And, and I do that because I like save old magazines and crap and look over them and go, oh, wow, that's how they did that. Uh, but we do. And something that we do not, I believe, fully take into consideration is that that mass marketing, that mass industrialization of the 20th century stripped many of us of the conscious aspects of our ancestral ties. Yes, but on a subconscious level, I think it's still there. And that's why, why these um, experiences resonate or perhaps even why they still exist and still happen even. Which is, <clears throat> you know, certainly uh, I, I, I find, uh, you know, an interesting cosmology in Neil Gaiman's American Gods the idea that as the as, as an individual uh, pays homage to a god it gains power the god gains power and is, is less homage is paid the god weakens and certainly there's a there's an interesting uh, psychological energetic manifestation concept within that worldview i I, I, and for the record, I love Neil Gaiman's work and I love the, the novel American Gods, um, as, as well as many other of <laughs> Neil Gaiman's works. But I, I personally, something that, that resonates with me is that this cosmology uh, or these many cosmologies simply exist and we experience varying degrees of awareness, but that, for example, the Tuatha Dé Danann, uh, you know, full disclosure, uh, this is my moment of confessional for myself. I believe the Tuatha Dé Danann exist. Um, and, I, and I believe they exist in the other world, uh, whether I pay them homage or not, but there is, there are these points of intersection when we might encounter an aspect of, of them that the, the world around us seems to shift uh, and, and shimmer and change. And depending upon the nature of the particular mm, beings involved, that could be a very good thing or that could be a very terrifying thing. And we... Uh, we, we proceed uh, at our own risk, but also that something that perhaps explains the popularity of the ghost hunting shows, it explains, perhaps explains the popularity of this interest in aliens and even, uh, you know, uh, just paranormal subjects in general, including our, us, 
is that we we're dealing with a mass population that perhaps on a subconscious level or a spiritual level or a net, you know, slightly removed level, we understand that there's more out there and that it's associated with our past and our ancestry. But we've all, to some degree, been the cords have been cut consciously by modern society. That's true, and ironically, um, as you were discussing that, made me think. Made me think that this process or this concern is is not even unique to modern culture. Uh, if you go back to the ancient Egyptians, their belief was that you would you would exist your your you would exist in the afterlife only so long as someone remembered your name mm -hmm. and so that there is a even you know three to five thousand years ago the idea of this continuity through time and what does it mean to continue or not continue is something that has been uh, on the minds of, of people for thousands of years, and which also is why ancient Egyptian pharaohs tended to often um, destroy uh, things erected by their predecessors or, or to remove their names from temples so that those other pharaohs wouldn't be remembered and they would. <clears throat> essentially destroying the competition pretty much but uh, in just in a sort of in a different way it's the same concern that uh, our idea that our beliefs our beliefs our our gods our uh, our beasties exist and follow us through time and generations um mm. And, and what does it take for that to happen or not happen? So um, I always find it interesting when you have a, a, a theory or a mode of thought that has lasted that many thousands of years in some fashion, there seems to be something to it. There, there are resonances within the the idea resonances within the cosmology and yeah. and you know and, and i i think that there's our, our very mm, media driven pop culture product driven society at this point does mm, strip us of our ancestral ties it does and, and then, of course, just the notion of being a melting pot and so forth tends to do that on some level as well, for it good does. and bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we we definitely see that. And and I in 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 micro the Ozarks plateau is an interesting space for that because we have seen um, cultures come in and. Uh, be drastically changed uh, in in various forms and for various reasons. The the one for me that is most striking is the mm, considerable 
uh, German immigration in the, particularly in the 19th century into Arkansas and quote unquote assimilation was so successful that a number of anthropologists seem to be unable to recognize uh, the, the German influences of particular mountain communities, even as they continue to exist. Yes, I found that odd as well. <laughs> it's, it, got... Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, it, it, it can be particularly helpful to approach it from a bit more of an embedded standpoint and a bit more of a gentle nuance. And it also helps if you know what you're looking for. And a clue is look for the food. Yes, the food, the barns, <laughs> the quilts. The um, quilt. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Okay. Ready. <laughs> Since we we're talking about you know monsters and monsters of a portent of a na natural nature, um, the monster of current uh, infamy in the Ozarks, of course, is the Howler. Yes. Um, and to chagrin of, of many followers of the Howler, I, I think it's pretty clear that it's not a natural monster. It's not a natural animal. Right. Um, how, how would you surmise the Ozark Howler in terms of being a monster? And being a monster. Well, it has its own fan fiction and its own fan art. It, it does, the, the Howler existed as, as its own fearsome critter back in the day for a variety of reasons. But the lore associated with the original Ozark Howler is comparatively limited and stable and has been somewhat domesticated just within the structure of the legend. You know, the, the, the legend itself is, is pretty compartmentalized as, as, what it was, as what it said it was and as far as what it was used for. It was used, I believe, from what I can tell, for doing two things. One, uh, telling original stories that would cause a shiver to run up your back as you were out in the wilds of, of the Ozarks in Missouri and Arkansas, um, being delicious, deliciously creepy to tell around the campfire. And also as a bit of a cautionary tale, just to remind us that they're certainly in the early era of, of pioneer settlement that there were large predatory animals that were quite dangerous, particularly nocturnal ones. Um, and that there was these unknown dangers that simply existed and you needed to be on the, on the lookout for them. That is a reality where the Ozark Howler then became uh, more of a folk motif is when our, our original Ozarks families uh, of settlement began to interact with uh, tourism, predominantly brought in by uh, local 
our, 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 our regional tourism in the 1920s and 30s, things like the land of a million smiles, um, um, marketing campaigns, and then extending into um, the White River country marketing campaigns, uh, Table Rock Lake marketing, et cetera, and bringing a, a unique um, conflict, I would say cultural conflict, between your uh, urban development people, your suburban uh, landowners, and the, the, the traditional people who had been in the hills for generations. So we see that, and what we see is very traditional uh, Ozarkers telling wild stories to see if they can fool the outsiders into believing them. And in these cases, we see the, the howler uh, grow in proportion. It becomes the size of a bear. It starts to have horns. It has gigantic fangs or maybe tusks. Its eyes glow red. It uh, does uh, impossible things, not unlike the snuffus. And, uh, and, it, and it starts taking on these qualities, but it up until recently, up until the internet, the Ozark Howler existed in that same category as, say, a jackalope. You go out on the prairie and hear the stories of the half um, jackrabbit, half antelope, sometimes with wings, those types of things. And uh, it's not that far removed from Babe the Blue Ox. It's not that far removed from just this Americana folklore that has a larger story to tell in terms of early American settlement and coming into uh, untamed spaces and finding new challenges and creating uh, a unique Americana folklore that is that has resonance with the old world, but is also decidedly and uniquely North American. And it, and, and, and I think, you know, uh, um, Paul Bunyan and, you know, and Babe the Blue Ox and these kind of stories from the North Woods, from the, the Minnesota region, uh, et cetera, is powerful because it, cre it begins to create a folklore that's established in a sense of place. And this is, a, this is establishing a sense of place that not very long, far beforehand uh, was untamed space, was a territory in which no one was in. Suddenly the space has its own lore, its own new ideas that are connected with the past, that are connected with the land, that are creating a sense of idea and a sense of space and a sense of this is from whence we came. And... And, and you see that with uh, uh, with Paul Bunyan in the association with the uh, Northwoods logging. Uh, and I think with the Howler, you see that association of place with Ozarks hillbillies, with the, uh, you know, the tall tales uh, in the rugged mountains of the uh, of the upland south, these kind of things. And so. <clears throat> The howler traditionally existed within that fabric, and the and thanks to the internet, uh, a handful of people plucked it from its fabric nest, uh, its cultural tapestry, 
pulled it out and then expanded it into something entirely larger and uh, more grotesque in the sense that it, it then began to get individuals creating its own fan art, uh, its own cyber art online and it grows in proportion its hair gets longer its eyes become more red its horns become more dramatic it uh it, it becomes uh terrifying it becomes uh troubling and it it starts stalking people etc it, it becomes drastically more dramatic because it has been pulled out of just as a um uh, just as i i think um real life um flora and fauna keeps itself in balance within an ecosystem you pull one of them out and you know give it lots of unnatural hormones and it could grow into something scary uh you know or you know basically a monoculture that uh you know you feed it and water it and give it all sorts of love and attention and it might take over the lab in <laughs> the 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 tapestry of lore uh the same thing i think is potential is potentially possible with our folkloric beast you remove one from its contextualized tapestry around it that keeps it in balance because you, if you you know the the uh the the uh, the howlers um uh, contextual cousins uh the jimplicute a gigantic ghost dinosaur uh the snophus a uh, a white great white deer that has uh dogwood blossoms growing out of its antlers and it flies to the treetops and makes sneezing noises uh the side hill hoofer which is part antelope but its legs are shorter on one side of its body than the other so if you get it on the flatland it tips over these um, folkloric cousins kept the howler um, contextualized. And when it gets pulled out by itself, it takes on a life of its own. And before long, people begin associating it and, and inflating it uh, into something that it realistically is likely not, which is, for example, uh, the physical, spiritual, corporeal, fey manifestation. I, I I agree with I agree with you in large part. I, I find it interesting that um, in in a lot of cases with quote monsters, they back you know in the eons of time started out as quote you know a real monster something of an unnatural nature um mm -hmm. and then over time people try to explain them in a natural way i think with those are color it's flipped because originally the tales you, you had the tall tale aspect but it came out of very real physical animals mainly bears large cats etc that that's where the stories came from and now as you said in the internet age it has morphed into something that when you just look at the current incarnation of the lore would appear more of that 
uh, traditional monster definition of something that's unnatural, it's that or flip it on its head, the sort of the renderings that are coming out about the howler currently have a definite uh, Bigfoot quality to them. And that is that is a really interesting intersection because Bigfoot lore goes back in the Ozarks pretty much forever. Mm -hmm. Well, the Ozark wild man, you know, goes back at least to the 1830s, um, even with um, notions that original, you know, that um, the first sightings in the early 1800s in northeast Arkansas were feral feral people who had uh, left the um, New Madrid area after the earthquakes and um, then over time have turned into Bigfoot uh, lore, uh, aside from other unique Bigfoot lore, like the Blue Man and Momo and the Fout Monster. And um, I, I do find it interesting that as, as the, the monstrous quality of the howler is growing, it's taking on connotations visually as it's depicted that most people, especially if you were not as, uh, um, aware of, quote, the howler, you, you look at the rendering and you say, oh, that's some sort of Bigfoot type creature. That one is uh, just, an, to me, is a fascinating uh, conceptual shift mm -hmm. that we see. Because in its, in its original state, the howler was a large, fearsome beast that was in the mountains that howled, mm -hmm. or yowled, honestly, um, is strongly associated with being a big cat. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as you noted, it has, in, in pop culture, it has begun this morphing process. Uh, it's transmogrifying into uh, the big red monster with, uh, with sneakers on from Bugs Bunny. <laughs> well, in some, in some versions, a, a, little, a little more vicious version of a monster <laughs> i will love him and hug him and squeeze him and make him george it uh, i i love looney tunes for anyone listening but but yes and it is it for me it's a weird juxtaposition because i initially never contemplated that anyone would actually take the howler seriously mm -hmm. I think that, that is my point of fascination and mixed with consternation uh because i really never thought uh from from studying the lore that anyone would take that seriously there are uh physical cryptids that i do take seriously um and the many aspects of bigfoot is something i do take very seriously same Please. Too many, uh, too many first-person reports uh, to not say that there is something very solid in terms of an unknown uh, physical manifestation going on. 
there are many aspects of the paranormal, as, as anyone familiar with the channel knows, that we take very seriously. I take it very seriously. And uh, just in terms of me associating with my own ancestral cosmology of the Celts, the legends and the lore of the Tuatha Dé Danann um, are, are, are something that I also take seriously. I have not traditionally taken the howler seriously because I am seeing the howler through the lens again with its uh, um, contextual cousins. Um, the the, the Gimply Coot and the Snawfish come to mind, a giant ghost, vampiric ghost dinosaur and a, um, a, and a large white deer with wings that uh, has dogwood blossoms growing out of its antlers. That's where I've traditionally put the howler. And then in times past, not terribly far removed, suddenly getting calls from uh, uh, sub-assistant uh, reality TV show producers with uh, <laughs> South California phone numbers asking me have I seen the Howler? Do I know anyone who has seen the Howler? Could I put them in contact with an individual who might have encountered a Howler? And it's probably a good thing that it wasn't a video call because I was just sitting there with a look on my face going, what on earth are you talking about? Yes, and then you sent them to me to answer the question. I did, I did. <laughs> I, I fielded some to begin with, for the record. I fielded some on my own to begin with. Then I just started sending them to you. <laughs> but I, I do find it I do find it interesting that I you know um, you know in fact there's a billboard on Highway 65 going to Branson with the Haller on it and for a tourist coming through and seeing that it's like oh okay kind of that looks kind of like Bigfoot. It does. Um, and I, I think to I think honestly we 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 do get input in our various outlets of people who seem to generally genuinely think that the howler is a i guess this is an oxymoron but a legitimate cryptid in the ozarks and i think it's you know it really is for people who have their their connection to the stories is internet only from the internet only <clears throat> yes, it largely its own on the internet. It does. And within that uh, highly public but compartmentalized subgenre, something that happens very quickly is that individuals interested in the howler can and and um, it's an important topic because this happens with lots of other things as well. Um, that it can create its own mini psychological weather pattern mm -hmm. amongst those interested. But for those of us on the ground, those of us interacting with real people, uh, real living, breathing, face-to-face -face people, that the howler has comparatively little impact on Ozark's developing lore or ancestral lore. But uh, if you get out into uh, talking with everyday people, particularly rural people in the mountains, 
and you start bringing up Bigfoot, you start bringing up Black Panthers, you start bringing up large cats. Uh, in some cases, you start uh, bringing up, um, you know, UFOs or unidentified flying objects. You start bringing up uh, paranormal experiences. You very quickly start encountering lots of people who either had personal experiences with these or they know someone personally and have had a, a first person account told to them of these experiences. Very much so, very much so. And uh, and that that is sort of the dichotomy with, with the Howler is that I've yet to, have, to encounter, encounter anyone who's had an experience with the Howler. No, and, <laughs> and hearing a large cat or a bobcat howl is not the same as experiencing the cryptid, the howler. Right. <laughs> but it does kind of uh, dovetail into a couple of other interesting monster type stories out of the Ozarks. One doesn't fit the traditional definition, but is certainly interesting that there is a fairly long line of sightings of hyenas in Arkansas. In Arkansas, yes. I'm I'm very interested in this. I have not spoken personally to anyone who's seen a hyena, but it is the classic, not a cryptid, but an animal out of place. Yes. I, I do also wonder if it does account for some uh, chupacabra type sightings. People <laughs> I was going to say that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was, you beat me to it. I was gonna say no, no, no. It's it's good. No, there are no such thing. There's no such thing as an Ozarks hyena that is ridiculous. They don't exist. It, the answer is very simple. We're just seeing chupacabras. And, and maybe we are. Maybe we're seeing both. Simple. <laughs> just just when you thought it got simple. Um, yeah, so Arkansas.com actually had a, had an interesting, from what I can tell, more of just say, oh, look at the fun folklore and the legendary monsters. But included in that was uh, reports that were, were interesting in terms of they appear to be first person on the ground reports uh, of individuals seeing a thing. And the thing looks like a hyena. Yes. And from, from, you know, using deductive reasoning from, from the accounts, they, they appear that size-wise, et cetera, it would be in line with a hyena. Um, and um, except for the fact that it's in Arkansas, it would seem like a natural animal site <laughs> right right and this is something i can't help but draw some comparisons to the uh, ozarks or borderlands of the ozarks animals out of place stories can be very interesting um mm -hmm. thanks to uh sek paranormal uh one of the great groups uh southeast kansas paranormal that we have the opportunity to work with at times uh, have collected stories of lions out of place. Yes. And in multiple places. 
Yes, uh, and and there's a there's some very unique aspects that we can conjecture about that, and I also can't help but tie in the uh, Springfield, Missouri Cobra Scare. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, animals out of place. Nobody is arguing that lions, cobras, or hyenas do or do not exist. But what is deeply unsettling to individuals who've had these experiences is, yes, they they exist, but they're not supposed to exist here and in this way. So what the heck is up? Right, right. Um, it, it certainly is an interesting, interesting um, example that. Uh, it is. So what what do you think? I mean, we, we have we have a lot of different possibilities in terms of explanations. We have the um, the animal got loose from the zoo. We have the animal got loose from the circus. We have the animal got loose from an exotic animal breeder. We have the, all of which tends to be more realistic. And I believe someone in Springfield actually came forward many, many years later and says, yeah, I was responsible. Uh, I, you know, I, I kicked the, the door off of the Cobra cage at the pet store. I'm still trying to figure out why the pet store had co- anyone. Yeah, that, that, that's the one part that I'm not convinced on that, that story, but yeah. Okay, yeah, someone okay. did, did claim responsibility, but uh, I'm not the, convinced. <laughs> of, the, of the long list of things to order for the pet store. Hmm. How about a cobra? Uh, <laughs> several of them. I, nothing could possibly go wrong with that. Well, it was an earlier, it was a simpler earlier time. Pet stores had cobras. Um, not something I personally have on my top 10 wish list when I go to the pet store. Same. Um, <laughs> saw him in the window and just couldn't come home without him. Um <laughs> But the, uh, you know, the, those, those reasons existing. The other is the idea of a lost or hidden indigenous population of the animal. Well, personally, I, 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 I don't ascribe to the relic population um, theory. Uh, sometimes it, Sometimes it could make sense where you had an animal that may have uh, survived up to a few thousand years ago. I think, you know, maybe there could be a breeding population that survived in remote areas, but North American hyenas died out hundreds of thousands of years ago, like over half a million years ago. So I I doubt that's the case. Um, And for me, I, I, I doubt that they um, escape from the circus. You don't see too many hyenas in circus, circuses, in traveling circuses. Mm-hmm. Um, could not, um, have not found anything to indicate that were, there were escaped hyenas from zoos or whatever um, that would account for this. Uh, so my, my guess is that an exotic breeder, uh, you know, that they got, got away, however, the reports are over, de- you know, 
a number of decades. So we're not talking about one animal or two animals. This, if, if people really saw hyenas at these various times over close to 50 years, there had to be a breeding population, which is even a little more far-fetched to believe, but I don't know. But right. if, if it's happened, my guess is that they've gotten away from exotic animal breeder. Yeah, and and realistically, I think that's the 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 answer. The other one that is fun, uh, that is on the opposing spectrum, is the idea of some sort of portal that uh, things are coming through from some place or some other time. Well, I mean, and that does kind of go along with the with the lion pride of lion sightings in various places that all happened at the same time that they were seen and even going down the street or whatever and then vanish almost like it was a interdimensional thing or time warp or whatever uh, almost as if you know they disappeared from the savannah and then appeared in the middle of kansas and then disappeared and so if something like that happened, may, maybe the hyenas came through similar time. It'd be interesting to note if, if there were any sightings of hyenas at the same time that the lions were. Maybe, maybe they came through with the lions. I don't know. <laughs> they, they might have. Um, the, the thing that I like about these type of conjecturings, although some people may find it really unsettling uh, or sometimes preposterous, is that it forces the mind to accept the at least even remote possibility that things in the world don't work the way we expect them to all the time. And that the world itself not, may actually be much vaster and much more dramatic than we are led to believe. That's true. We, we, we tend to like our little Chinese boxes and everything it, it fits into a, a pigeonhole. And, and these stories do remind us that as much as we think we control our world, we may not. And we may not. And that is not necessarily a bad thing uh, because it forces us to develop a, a greater awareness. And it also forces us to approach, sometimes approach life with a bit more trepidation, but at least with a bit more sense of wonder than we've we've really been essentially indoctrinated into. Agreed. Now, sense of wonder, how about let's talk about the felt monster for a second. <laughs> I love the felt monster. Uh, of course, I've not I met it personally. Um, the, <clears throat> but the, the felt monster to me is particularly fascinating we're, we're dealing with essentially we're dealing with a bigfoot sighting pretty much now uh you know one one thing that's a little different is that that uh, supposedly it has three toes instead of five so mm -hmm. some people say that it can't be a pri primate can't be bigfoot uh and that may mean that it's a hoax um but i mean there are similar accounts of Bigfoot-like creatures with three toes further south in the swamps and the marshes and so forth. So 
who knows? Um, and, and maybe just a large population with some sort of mutation, you know, she just want to throw something odd out there. <laughs> right. I, I, I love the fact it, the, for me, the, the fat monster is actually a lot more fascinating than power. Same, same. I, I agree. And, and this is something that, again, that, uh, you know, there's sightings that go back to the 1850s. Um, and then periodically since up until the last, the last time I actually researched it, I, I think the last uh, reports that I had had verified were just like three or four years ago. So, which for for a more corporeal cryptid sighting, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The idea that 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 we are so that, I mean the, the basic conjecture is that we are we're dealing with um, a, a Bigfoot type um, a cryptid mm -hmm. that existing in and around um, Boggy Creek and uh, and South Arkansas, which yes. is, is close to Texarkana and close to the Louisiana state line. Right, it's in the borderlands, but the same creature has been seen in other areas around there too. So it's not just quite that far south, it, it, but around Falk is where the, the sort of a cl the clustering of sightings are and where the more famous sightings are. Um, mm. So this could be a more wide ranging creature, just like um, the blue man uh, has been reported um, through a pretty large swath of uh, North Central Arkansas and South Central um, Missouri. So, um, for those, for someone saying, "Well, Falk is, isn't really the Ozarks," well, I, I, I really, I, it's the, it is the borderlands, and the sightings and so forth are not just pinpointed on that dot. Uh, correct. And <clears throat> once uh, you know, you look at the the aspects of. Of of borderlands, it's it's really important because it helps contextualize the Ozarks, and the Ozarks also help contextualize the borderlands, particularly in terms of lore and history. Yes, and the two do not exist without the other, and there are the on so many aspects, the Ozarks are at crossroads which is in and of itself interesting from a hoodoo perspective. <laughs> one big crossroad. <laughs> one, one giant conjuring crossroads in the middle of the United States. I probably am going to regret having said that. Um, but <laughs> it really, you know, that... I'll take the, credit for it so you don't have to regret it. <laughs> I, uh, the... The, the 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 lore that is associated with Falk Monster is not dissimilar to the lore that's associated with so many of the other uh, primate cryptid experiences or phenomena sightings that have taken place for 
mm, close to 200 years in the region. Exactly. And, you know, and one reason it, you know, it is tends to be a little more inf infamous is because it was turned into a docu-drama uh, horror movie by Charles Pierce. Um, yeah. And uh, centering around probably the most famous uh, encounters uh, the Ford family had with the creature mm -hmm. in 1971. Um, and, uh, and I think one thing that's, you know, in, that is kind of interesting about this is that a lot of the, the Bigfoot encounters and tales in the Ozarks region tend to be of a fairly reclusive creature that tries to avoid, for the most part, avoid contact with people. I mean, there are some exceptions. There are some early accounts of the Ozark wild man attacking people, although they were chasing him at the time. Um, and the blue man um, uh, being aggressive towards loggers uh, in Southern Missouri in the 1860s. Um, but from what perspective that may well have been uh, as a consequence to um, them coming too close to habitat or what was perceived as aggression from the men, it's hard to know. But uh, the Fout monster tends to overall be, seem to be a little more aggressive and certainly um, more um, perhaps careless in attacking animals, you know, uh, in the open, that kind of thing. Um, that you don't get with a lot of the other accounts, um, mutilated hogs, etc. Um, and then apparently just taking offense at the, the Ford family. Quite, quite possibly. And for the record, I, the original films, I really like. I do too. Uh, uh, I, I love, I actually love the cinematography and they were shot on location. Mm -hmm. They 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 were uh, many many of the individuals who were extras in the film are are just folks who live in the region. And um, monster aside, it is to me a really beautiful film or beautiful films just showing the region and showing the the what I would consider to be the very stately quality of this um, uh, of this ecosystem as a whole and in and, and an interesting uh, sometimes cliched but sometimes in my opinion very positive uh, representations of some of the, the the locals I I do have to admit my introduction to um, in the Falk monster <laughs> uh, actually comes from the fact that Buggy Creek 2 and the legend continues was featured in Mystery Science Theater 3000 and is one of my all-time favorite episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000 with some of my favorite <laughs> line from uh, Crow T. Robot and, uh, and Tom Servo because I'm a huge fan. 
but it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that there is an enormous uh, compendium of lore that is associated with with this region and i think that it is mm, skeptics aside reasonable to say that there is something in the swamp there there's there does seem to be something in the swamp i mean and you have recurring accounts now of about oh, about 170 years um and so this isn't something that just happened once and did the, these people make it up or exaggerate and, it, and nothing ever happened. Uh, there were sightings after that up to the current time as well as going back a very long time. So something seems to be going on, definitely. Um, yes. okay. and, and, and here we did the movie, um, was actually um, had an encounter as a child. And then when the story about the Ford family came up, that's when he ended up doing the movie. But part of it was because of his own experience um, that uh, had stayed with him, which I, I, I find very interesting. And your comment about the Ozarks being one big crossroads uh, kind of makes me think one thing that always kind of gets me is in the movie they they show driving down Highway 71, you know, you know, down in Arkansas. And one of the more famous reportings of the monster is it walking across Highway 71, which it's very interesting for me because you know I live, <laughs> I live a couple of miles away from Highway 71, and just to think that you know it's literally the same road, right? Damn it. You know yeah. that we're we're not that we're we're not that disconnected and disjointed, um, and uh, I just find that sort of a romantic notion, I guess. It is, and and I like it, and uh, yeah, and we've seen um, similar. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just a a moment of, of uh, numerological uh, synergy, but Highway sixty one uh, going up the Mississippi in northern Missouri uh, is is also associated with the Momo. Which is another Missouri monster. Cryptid. That's true. Uh, again, not dissimilar to the uh, the Falk monster. Very true, and sort of the and the and the and the main sightings for Momo were not too far different in time than than the the Ford sightings for the Colt monsters. That's very true. That is very true. Unrelated, it's also within the time frame of the the Piedmont UFOs, but I don't yeah, think that slightly I'm, before that. Yeah, I'm not actually tying those together, at least not today. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> We're not going there tonight. <laughs> I have the baseball cap. I have the black baseball cap that has has um, a UFO and Bigfoot on it. So that's all the proof I need. It is a great baseball cap. I will wear it for the next episode.
wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, I know you will. That's the thing. I know. <laughs> I am nothing if not predictable. Mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So now what beastie? Oh, hmm. well, I'm I'm always up for for the uh, the compendium of Celtic beasties, and just okay. looking for for uh, cross references of things that happen in the Ozarks. Also, some uh, you know full. I think it's it's important to properly contextualize the lore in association with the Ozarks. We've talked about how the 20th century largely robbed us of our ancestral lineage when it comes to mm -hmm. folklore. Um, and consequently, there are uh, mythological and other beasties of the British Isles that may inform lore in the Ozarks, but mm -hmm. the connective tissue um, is often lost. I, I agree. I agree. Um, and, and for some, that tends to mean, oh, there is no connection, you know, um, two different things, two separate things. Um, mm. But I, I I, I I agree. It's not that simple. No, it isn't. And what I what I you know, as we just begin this portion of the discussion, what I encourage people to do is consider these aspects that the the cosmology that we're dealing with, for lack of a better term, the cosmology of the lore that we do have documented in the British Isles informs elements of mm, this supernatural worldview that you see in Appalachia and you see in the Ozarks. Although again, as I mentioned, some of that connective tissue has been lost and sometimes mixed with, uh, with other traditions. So it is fascinating as points of comparison, just as you can't really wrap your head around all of the lore in the Ozarks without including Germanic lore, without including Cherokee lore, without including African-American lore. Um, these all connect, these all inform uh, the, 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 the development of, uh, of traditional Ozarkian folklore, but they are also, they are connected, they are also separate. And you, you have to play in that middle ground to, to really develop a, a larger perspective. What we do know, though, in terms of creating that, recreating that connective tissue between the British Isles and the Ozarks is that enormous numbers of early European settlers into, or Americans into the Ozarks, as for example, Missouri was becoming a state in, the, in 1921 as, uh, Arkansas was following suit not terribly long afterwards. The individuals coming in, these were largely Tennessee and Kentucky settlers. These were largely Scotch-Irish. And 
on an ancestral level and then sometimes on a literal level, they were bringing with them these stories. Very much so. So where and, do you want to start? <laughs> oh, I think the, mm, just jumping over on Arnos to page 14, just very briefly, the concept of the fairies, of the fae, which we've talked a little bit about already, and just tying initially into the fairy trees, predominantly the Hawthorne, this overarching idea that certain trees have great spiritual meaning and that certain trees exist as gateways into the other world and that they have to be regarded you you walk lightly within these spaces and as as with much of the ozarks uh and it's just with the story of humanity this is a an existing um a a a, a simultaneous contradiction because on one hand uh ozarkers made their living out of logging mm -hmm. uh which certainly is a is, is a contradiction with the idea of the fae but at the same time there there are moments in which certain trees are regarded as particularly special uh interesting strange cursed the the two points that i think would be interesting one um is that even into comparatively recent times certain cedar trees were noted as attracting an infestation of copperheads mm -hmm. and we still don't actually know why uh, and it could happen in somebody's yard and you go out and usually in i think i think around august uh, and for whatever reason every copperhead in the country has decided they love this tree and so your your friendly cedar tree in the backyard is dripping with copperheads and that's unsettling that's unsettling and then the flip side is that um cedar particularly with native americans in the region um mm. is used for protection and cedar boughs put over uh doorways etc for protection and so it's almost you know the antithesis of its normal use yes which in, in terms of the witch fairy motif that it comes to be expected the thing that is the the ward also becomes the point of power true and that, and that follows through with some of the cherokee lore as well it it, it makes for a very for for our contemporary sensibility it it becomes very confusing because the thing that's supposed to protect you becomes the weapon of the thing that is ostensibly endangering you. Yes, tread lightly. Yes, uh, or vice versa. The uh, and and that's when it it gets into that that really interesting space of it depends. Um, and, and along with that just just jumping off for a moment this isn't specifically a beast but it is a uh, a folkloric manifestation 
that I find really interesting, and this is jumping up into uh, your part of the Ozarks, is the um, the the hanging tree that was not cut down. Yes, uh, and actually, I, I was thinking about that earlier. We were talking about the trees and, and their meaning. Um, um, traditionally, uh, and, and this and this isn't just endemic to uh, the Ozarks, but uh, a tree that was used for ha hanging was viewed as unlucky mm -hmm. and that it would uh, draw hauntings to it, um, which has overtones of the Fae just there too, that it, that it would draw spirits to it. So yeah. the remedy was to cut it down. And um, this, Although it's a traditional belief, it became more prominent during the Civil War because you had a number of lynchings um, in the Burnt District during the war. And so uh, tales would kind of grow up around those hanging trees and uh, they try to cut them down. There is one that isn't too far from where I live. The, the lore was that um, a uh, soldier was lynched along the stage road and the tree was not cut down mainly because there weren't too many people around at the time because it was depopulated and then over time it's become a matter of debate of where exactly was the hanging tree along the road is it still there and the general area tends to have a number of hauntings and there's some conjecture that perhaps the reason there are so many hauntings in that area is because the hanging tree was not cut down. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, and I think I really, you know, this, this speaks to something that is incredibly difficult to document other than identifying the area and seeing if you can gather EVPs, etc. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I can say that there, there are a number of hauntings in, in that vicinity, that very close vicinity. It is a matter of, you know, talking even to elderly residents and hearing what they say from, you know, their parents and grandparents that, you know, there's disagreement. What, was it this tree or was it down the block or was it a block over? Um, exactly where. Um, and then some say, well, it, it, the tree's dead, now it's gone. Some say, no, it's still living, which there certainly are trees in that area, a few trees in that area that would have been there during the Civil War and large enough to have been the hanging tree at that time. So um, we, we may just have spirits floating around looking for it, I'm not sure. And it, it brings up a, an unsettling aspect that, that messes with us because it goes beyond um, basic corporeal science. Right. But the idea, and, and I personally believe that this idea holds merit in certain circumstances and locations is that 
at at points of violent death that there is a resonance created that does something within the space. I agree. And may, maybe not in every instance, but certainly in a number. I, I do think that's true based on my experience investigating, yes. And so you, you know, and, and going along with that, and something that and this does date back to, to the old world, there is a, um, a, a and I, I wish I could find the documentation of this. It was very fascinating to me because it was a it was in a an engineering magazine that my dad got in the early 90s and i wish i had saved it because it was detailing some 1990 early 90s um essentially um emf uh evp and uh, electromagnetic field and electronic voice phenomena and early digital camera work that was done in a reportedly extremely haunted castle in Scotland. Interesting. And it was this was published sort of as a um, you know interesting out of the ordinary piece, but it was detailing the 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 tech that was being involved. But it was also being presented in this magazine from a serious standpoint. It wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, this was this wasn't uh, this wasn't a tabloid magazine. This was a, a magazine that traditionally dealt with things like, you know, a turbine function and the and you know those types of things. <clears throat> but it detailed that a number of very unsettling um a phenomena had been recorded um the what appeared to be uh, disembodied voices um uh, some some words coming through on the evps that were mm, uh not friendly and the the particular space within the Scottish castle, and I, I now that I'm talking about this, I'm I'm like trying to figure out how we can narrow it down to find which one it was. But it was a a, a particular dungeon well in which a number of people had been executed. I, oh, I think I know. I think I do. Um, oh. I, I, I've, I have read and, and actually seen documentaries about that, about a castle that fits that description with the dungeon well. Um, okay. um, but I, I can't think of which castle it is off the top of my head, but yes. Um, okay. um, and um, yeah, and particularly rather gruesome, uh, gruesomely built so that when they throw people into it, they were impaled. Yes. 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 And uh, so some really interesting documentation was done in the early 90s um, that was recorded in this engineering magazine. And just thinking about that, uh, I can't help but draw comparisons with, with very 
aspects. One, uh, spilled blood. Mm -hmm. Spilled blood seems to be a focusing point for creating this sort of almost rift within space. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that seems to, for example, attract hauntings as well as potentially uh, be a haunting. It seems to attract hauntings as well. It also, and, and for people who are like, wait a second, you're talking about ghosts, you're talking about beasts uh, or fantastical or mythological beings. There is in the lore, a very interesting intersection between ghost and fae and fae beast. Those mm -hmm. things tend to, to exist sort of all, not just alongside each other, but within the same matrix. Yes, at times, yes. And along with that, another mm, thing that I, I can't help but just draw some comparisons, I'm jumping subjects I know, but uh, from the hanging tree is haunted operating rooms. That is a jump, but yes. <laughs> it's got, yeah, and, and my, 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 my thought on this, just as I'm going, is um, individuals having not um, deliberately having a similar type of death, which creates a resonance, which may attract more than just ghosts. Mm -hmm. um, but regardless of the intent, the idea that dying in surgery is not unlike a violent death. Well, that's true. I mean, it's, I mean, it, I mean, if you look at it from the third person, um, as someone perhaps on the other side of the veil or the fae, et cetera, would, um, it really is the same mechanism. Um, it's in, I, I guess you could say that the difference would be whether or not there would be the emotions involved at the moment of death, but I'm not sure that for all those beings that that is the crucial point. I'm not sure. That's interesting. And certainly uh, operating rooms do tend to be extremely um, haunted areas in hospitals. Um, almost on, on par with morgues. I've always found it sort of interesting in an odd way that morgues have so many hauntings associated with them as well as cemeteries, although I find that cemeteries tend not to generally be haunted, although they're reputed to be haunted. There are some exceptions. Um, I've also, in, in investigating areas that had morgues, uh, have not really encountered one that had any activity that I experienced or investigators with me experienced, although there are certainly stories. Um, uh, but more more operating rooms than morgues. Mm -hmm. and, and again, my, my theoretical conjecture on this is, yes, we are dealing with 
with spirit hauntings, but we're also running the possibility that other aspects of the other worlds may be attracted to these points. And I, I do think that is, I, I do think that's reasonable in, in, in a possibility, especially some of these, these creatures or monsters that tend to have, oh, uh, almost a vampiric or a, or a werewolf type aspect to them, uh, tend to be drawn to and are seen in areas of of death. Mm-hmm. And that and this is um, to you know the the larger overarching point for our, our listeners is that there's a number of people who've experienced phenomena that doesn't quite seem to all make sense. Right, or necessarily just be explained by a pure haunting. Right. And so this is sort of our our mind-bending episode to take into account that uh, there are potentially lots of things that could be coming into play. On our notes on page 28, there was a a particular uh, entity um, that that I found interesting in terms of tying in, which is the Glastig. It's a Scottish ghost that often appears as a beautiful woman in a green dress with a gray visage and long yellow hair. However, her attire is in part disguised because the lower half of her body is that of a goat. Interesting. A bit like Dear Woman. That's what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking. And there's uh, also... Uh, a little bit of a tie, even in the note, in the, the notes, uh, that, that cross ties her to the Bab and She, uh, which is a an Irish um, vampire ghost woman fae manifestation. Well, yes, and 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 dear woman in Cherokee and lore and Quapaw lore has similar characteristics um not quite so much the vampiric per se but certainly um a quality of stealing uh energy stealing life even um even Mm -hmm. if it's not through blood yeah and and there is a there is the aspect um while while not vampiric in the idea of I'm, you know, there to, to, you know, drain someone of their blood. Um, the dear woman, dear woman exists as a cautionary tale because um, she kills men. She does, particularly men that have not treated women well. Yes, which is has as some some very strong similarities with Irish folklore. And in in that regard, it is interesting, you know, coming back to one of our previous points, this particular bit of lore with the glass jig and comparing her with Deer Woman does strongly substantiate the idea that we're dealing with um, 
sort of a, in this case, we might be dealing with a, a singular plane of phenomena. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, as each people group is interacting, they begin to create their own lore to contextualize it, but they're contextualizing essentially the same type of phenomena. Yes. And, and, and Dear Woman is a good example that I've heard versions of it where she, she is the ghost of a woman that's been murdered by a man, uh, mm -hmm. as well as versions where she is more of that other type creature um, that is interacting, but she's not a human ghost. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is, is distinctive um, because again, we're, we're so oftentimes now dealing with a, a, a being that is simultaneously corporeal and non-corporeal. Mm -hmm. The idea is that with a ghost, um, it is almost always, is simply regarded as much as we can compartmentalize anything that a ghost is non-corporeal. Right. And that on the opposing end of the spectrum, for example, the concept of a cryptid like Bigfoot is that Bigfoot is always corporeal. And then we're now in this really interesting territory of somewhere in between. Yes. Well, and even in, 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 um, native lore in, in this area, uh, the Quapaw, the Ewa fits that category. It, it does. And let's talk about that just for a moment because of that connection with the Ozarks. Uh, the concept of the Ewa, because the Ewa is, th there's, there's a couple of things I really like just in terms of the discussion of the Ewa. And the first one is that the Ewa is not an ancestor spirit. Yes, uh, specifically not an ancestor spirit. Ancestor spirits are entire are, are just spirit. Um, the Iwa are are seen as a tritster, uh, mischievous in some cases, even more malevolent, um, and that it is spirit and a physical entity at the same time. And that, again, if you're, if you're not accustomed to this type of lore, doesn't seem like it should be possible. Right. But, um, and I, I really like that lore because it, is, it, it, it very much, pairs uh, with a lot of Celtic lore as far as concept, um, which I like because it shows that that idea is not just endemic to the Celts. Right. And I think that is, that is very, very reasonable. Um, and something that, you know, just from a, from a, cultural standpoint, something that we saw that many people don't realize took place is that our many of our Celtic forebears, when they ended up in Appalachia, and later when they ended up in the Ozarks, there was a lot of cultural similarities between the Celts and the Cherokee, 
as an example. Yes. They 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 uh, were not entirely entirely um, a miss from each other. Um, no. as, as well as well with some of the um, culture, the Osage with, as well. Correct. And, and I think that we see, um, you know, aspects of that, that cultural um, cross-pollination uh, taking place. It's really, really interesting. And of particular interest to me, which again, I, I really think is beautiful and fascinating and just a extraordinary in its complexity of the human story is that there's, for example, a number of, uh, of individuals I know who have, uh, first of all, are on the, on the rolls um, in, in Oklahoma with um, enough uh, Native American ancestry to qualify them to, to be able to uh, carry their, their uh, American Indian or, or First Nation cards uh, mm -hmm. to qualify for, for example, for healthcare, et cetera, in Oklahoma with, uh, with the tribes. And these are individuals oftentimes with uh, blue eyes, some cases, sandy blonde hair, um, complexions that are lighter than mine. And that was mm -hmm. uh, one one conversation I had with a friend uh, who does have uh, native, strong Native American background, and looking at me, going, "Judge, you're you're darker than I am," and I'm like, "Well, I'm Welsh, so there you go." But, <laughs> um, but again, it's it's it, it it reminds me of that conversation I had years and years ago with uh, a merchant artist in actually it's Silver Dollar City. It was twenty years ago. And uh, she, she's blonde, blue, blue eyes, and she's talking to me about how important her Cherokee ancestry is to her, and mentioning um, from from an ancestral lineage point and from a non basically a spiritual manifestation point that, in her words, she heard the drums. Mm -hmm. I've heard that before, and and I found that really beautiful. And that was the first time that I'd ever heard that term. And I had to like say, oh, time out. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and at least from, from my conversation with her, and I uh, may need to further contextualize this, but the idea that certain people uh, of Cherokee ancestry at certain times in their life, particularly at moments of high portent, will hear uh, ancestral drumming. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is distinct and in some cases they may be the only person to hear it but it speaks very profoundly to them yes which is goes right back to the definition we started with yes <laughs> yes it does um on on our notes on page 35 at the bottom uh the cuddly eye is uh is a bit of welsh uh uh lore in regards to essentially gnome miners, uh, not not too terribly mm, far removed from the Tommyknockers. Yes, yes, and that the that basically 
they they came with the Welsh to America and were encountered by miners here. Yes, and it, it to me this is particularly interesting. Um, of course, the the tri-state mining district is uh, uh, a, a crucial part of the the Ozarks and the Ozarks story and uh, not part of the separate, not part of the Ozarks, but uh, my ancestors landed in Southern Iowa, which is in, at the time was coal mining country. Again, mm -hmm. lots and lots of mining associated and a lot of lore wrapped around that. And it's something that I, that I think bears a little bit of discussion is aspects of mining because of its um, <sighs> conflict with nature, essentially. Like mm -hmm. the, the individuals who are mining were putting themselves into extremely high risk environments. Mm -hmm. uh, is not in a weird sort of way, in a folkloric sort of way, is not dissimilar from sailing, uh, the, the uh, great sailing lore that and the superstition surrounding it that's true that's an that is an interesting parallel i hadn't thought about but very true um lots of danger lots of risk um and the need to be able to figure things out in a crisis um it, it's funny the uh some of the lore with the cobley and i um or, or that they would um, be helpful to the miners and they would knock in places where there were uh, rich veins of mineral or metal, whatever they were mining for. And it reminds me of a, of a, of a story in the Tri-State District of um, a mining engineer, particularly um, Arthur Vindelari, who um, uh, was known to just have that touch, um, um, an uncanny ability to find minds and uh, to sink holes in the right place. And in fact, um, the, um, how the Pitcher Mining Field, uh, which is in the Tri-State District, just over the uh, Oklahoma line, uh, and became the richest uh, lead district in the world um, really fits this lore because um, they had um, gone down to around Veneta, Oklahoma, thinking that they that there might be a vein down there. And this is in about 1914, 1915,, and so all the mining equipment, it's on wagons. This is that long ago. And they um, struck out, didn't find anything. So they were coming back towards Joplin. And almost as if someone knocking or whatever, they, had, they have a wagon break down. And so they have to fix the wagon before they can move on. So Bindalari decides, what the heck, I'm going to sink a sink a, a, a test hole while he's waiting. And 
so by accident hits the the largest vein of lead found in the world. Oh, uh, they probably know I may have been talking to him. That's, that's what it made me think of because it was like it, it was just completely unplanned, you know, uh, almost you would think off the cuff, but perhaps there was a reason the wagon broke down where it did. Which is is vastly interesting. And, and you know, when you look at picture Oklahoma today, uh, the mm, sort of the, the modern retelling that what the what the fae give you they also take away very very true very true um now of course is is uh advertised as you know ghost town etc technically technically isn't because there actually are a few people still there but um the town has been bought out because of of uh, lead contamination from mm. the chat piles. Um, um, and I can still remember people, you know, coming through and, and people driving through who weren't from the area who thought they were mountains. So wow. Yeah. It's <clears throat> again the the there's a something that I think we lose when we when we lose our ancestral ties, what we often lose with it is the cautionary tale to remain in balance. Very true. Often what happens is in some way we end up having to relearn that lesson. Over and over and over. Um, the, the understanding that we must exist in balance in order to mm, move on to the next generation successfully often stands in the way of mass profit. True. <laughs> Which I, I think is interesting because how many times does uh, the lost treasure and the fairy gold um, play a role in these stories? Often, often they do, and and then in modern life, they do in reality, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's there there are some strong parallels um, that that cross all of these boundaries, all of these lines, and we can learn so much. Whether you believe in the Fae or not whether you believe in cryptids or not, there is so much that you can learn in terms of our ancestral past. I, I agree. And uh, uh, be informed for lessons for the very real modern world. Mm -hmm. That may be a good uh, place to end tonight. Uh, we want you to not forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Dark Ozarks to everyone. And on our next episode, we are going to be discussing seances and spiritualism. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Substack, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers 
in the dark Ozarks.